It would be an understatement to say that God works in amazing ways. Not only does he work in amazing ways, he works in surprising and, yes, even confusing ways. We'll see an example of that in our text this morning. Let's turn again to Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And this morning we move into a new paragraph of thought as we come to verse 12. Verses 1 through 11 are really Paul's opening greetings to his friends. Verse 12 begins the letter proper or the the body of the letter itself. So please follow along as I read verses 12 through 14. Philippians chapter 1 verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear." In order to understand this section running from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, we need to remember that Paul is a prisoner in Rome as he writes these words. He was incarcerated in Jerusalem, as we'll see later in the message. But the Romans didn't know what to do with him because he hadn't really committed a crime. So they just bounced him around in the legal system for a while, and eventually he ended up in Rome. In fact, Acts 24-27 indicates that Paul was held in limbo for over two years waiting for something to develop in his case, his trial. Finally, Paul appealed to Caesar, according to Acts 25-11, and thus he was shipped off to Rome. But if you know the story in the book of Acts, then you know that his trip to Rome wasn't very pleasant. It certainly wasn't a pleasure cruise. The ship he was on was shredded by a storm, and he had to swim for his life. He ended up on the island of Malta, where he waited for three months. But finally, he arrived in Rome. Turn back to Acts chapter 28 to pick up the story from there. Go back to the book of Acts. In fact, we are going to be bouncing back and forth between Philippians and Acts this morning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 28. Acts, chapter 28, verse 16. Acts 28, 16. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar." 
Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. Then skip down to verse 30, where Dr. Luke tells us, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house. In other words, he's under house arrest. And received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It was during this very time that Paul wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and our letter of study, Philippians. Now let's go back to our text in Philippians chapter 1. So Paul is incarcerated in the city of Rome as he writes Philippians. He's not in the dungeon, as we just saw, but he is confined and guarded by a Roman guard around the clock. He has been a prisoner for close to five years at this point in his life. Don't let that statement run by you too quickly. Think where you were five years ago right now, and think if for the last five years you had been unjustly incarcerated. That's how long this had been dragging on for Paul. Five years. So naturally you would expect those kinds of circumstances to have a very restricting effect on his ministry and on the furtherance of the gospel. But such was not the case. And since the Philippians were worried about Paul and how he was doing, he tells them the results of all that has happened to him over the past five years. You see, the Philippians knew how consumed Paul was with the spread of the Word of God, and they knew he was incarcerated. So they were afraid that his incarceration would destroy his ministry and, as a result, break his spirit. So Paul writes to tell them that he's doing fine. In fact, he tells them that he is rejoicing because his circumstances haven't thwarted the furtherance of the gospel. On the contrary, God has used his unfair, unjust circumstances to further the gospel in a very unique way. He tells his friends about this in the text we just read consisting of verses 12 through 14. Notice what he says in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, he's basically saying this. The outcome is different than you would expect. It's not what you might assume is happening. Elsewhere, Paul uses a similar phrase to this one, I want you to know, to refer to something very important. What was so important that Paul wanted his friends to know? Simply this. His circumstances had not limited the spread of the Word of God. The little phrase, the things which happened to me, here in this verse, includes everything from his arrest in Jerusalem on Temple Mount, his stay at Caesarea by the sea for a couple years, until the present time of his writing this letter. And another couple years have elapsed. So remember, they had not seen him for five years, over five years. 
They had heard what had happened to him, so they wanted to know the results of what had happened to him. So he tells them here in verse 12 that his circumstances had actually resulted in a greater spread of the gospel and the word of God. It was during all of this time that he had the opportunity to give the gospel to many officials in Israel when he was captured, when he was held at Caesarea by the sea. Included in this list of officials was the Sanhedrin up on Temple Mount, Felix, Festus, King Agrippa, his wife Bernice. He shared the gospel with all those people. Also, he had the opportunity to share the gospel with many on his journey to Rome by ship. It was also during this time that he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Four inspired letters that are in the New Testament. In addition to his writing ministry booming during this time, Acts 28 tells us, as we saw a moment ago, that he could have groups of visitors come to see him and hear him continuously without any restrictions. Many came just to hear what was going on and why Paul was incarcerated there. His story, his situation was sort of a social interest story. People around Rome wanted to know, what's the deal here with this guy? What, what's the big deal? Why is he incarcerated? There's no charge against him. Why don't they let him go? What's going on? So his circumstances had a major impact on the spread of the gospel. And that's what really mattered to Paul. The furtherance of the gospel was what really mattered to him. We'll go back to the book of Acts again, this time chapter 20, to see this. Acts chapter 20. This is Paul speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church just before he left them. And I, know, I want you to notice what he said. <clears throat> Acts 20, verse 22. He says, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now watch this. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Beloved, that was the issue to Paul. He just wanted to make sure that the message of the grace of God went forth. And since his circumstances were actually furthering the gospel, he told his Philippian friends, that he was rejoicing. Now back to our text in Philippians chapter 1. As I thought about how God used Paul's unfair, harsh circumstances to further the gospel, I was reminded of the story of John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was a great preacher of the gospel who was thrown in the Bedford jail for preaching the gospel. While he was there in jail, he continued to preach to people who would gather outside the wall to listen to him. So eventually the authorities threw him in an isolated inner room where no one could hear him. It was there he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which maybe more than any other book except the Bible, spread the word of God to thousands and thousands of people. 
The point is this, beloved. God's word and God's work can't be extinguished. Jesus was illegally and maliciously put to death, but in the process, he conquered sin, death, hell, and Satan. In Acts 8, the church scattered because of persecution, but the end result was wider evangelism. Acts 8, 4 says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. God uses everything that men Hell and Satan have to throw at us to further his word and his work. Near the end of his life, Paul expressed the fact that he had learned that nothing could thwart the furtherance of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2.9, the very last letter he wrote, he referred to the gospel and said this, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of chains, catch this, but the word of God is not chained. The word of God is not bound. People can't stop the spread of the word of God. When I think about that, I think of the illustration of those huge, inflatable clown punching bags with weighted bottoms. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those? Every time you hit them, they just bounce right back up. You knock them to the ground, they just bounce right back up. That's the way it is with the word of God. Every time people try to destroy it, knock it down, extinguish it, it just comes right back. During the years of persecution under the Roman Empire, Christians sought refuge in underground caverns outside of Rome. They dug almost 600 miles of catacombs, and 10 generations of Christians were buried in those over a 300-year period. I was just there a couple of months ago in the catacombs, walking around, seeing some of the tombs, the inscriptions. Archaeologists estimate that up to 4 million Christians were buried in the catacombs. One of the common inscriptions that appears at the bottom of the catacombs is the little phrase from 2 Timothy 2.9, The word of God is not bound. The Roman emperor Nero tried to stamp out Christianity and extinguish the word of God. He failed, of course. He was the emperor who had Paul beheaded eventually. It's interesting how time has a way of righting wrongs of the past, is it not? It's funny to me that we name our sons Paul and our dogs Nero. In the year 303, the emperor Diocletian issued an edict, quote, to stop Christians from worshiping and to destroy their scriptures, end quote. And yet, how many of you have your Bibles in your hands right now? Diocletian's edict failed. You know why? Because in Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That is why all the attempts to destroy the word of God have failed. In fact, just 25 years after the edict of Diocletian, the man who tried to stamp out the word of God, Constantine, the next Roman emperor, gave an edict that said, quote, 50 copies of the scriptures would be prepared at the expense of the government, end quote. Beloved, no other book, no other book could have survived the attacks that have been leveled at the Bible down through the ages. H.L. Hastings said this, and I quote, 
Infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet it stands today as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases, and it is more loved and cherished and read today than ever before. Infidels, with all their assaults, make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of the Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have all tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives, end quote. Bernard Ram, who is a scholar in the area of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation, adds, quote, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded, the funeral procession formed, the inscription cut on the tombstone, and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stays put. No other book has been so chopped, knifed, sifted, scrutinized, and vilified. What book on philosophy or religion or psychology or modern times has been subject to such a mass attack as the Bible? With such venom and skepticism, with such thoroughness and erudition upon every chapter, line, and tenet, yet the Bible is still loved by millions, read by millions, and studied by millions, end quote. One man said it this way, We might as well put our shoulder to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop it on its flaming course as attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible. Paul found that out in his circumstances. Paul experienced that in his own life. So he says to his friends here in verse 12, The outcome is different than you would expect. The things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Then in verse 13, Paul tells of the impact of his imprisonment outside the church. Verse 13, he says, So that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, the praetorium, and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. These guards were chained to Paul for six-hour shifts. And by the way, I meant my wording exactly how I stated it. From a human standpoint, Paul was chained to these guards, but from the standpoint of the gospel, these guards were chained to Paul. They were a captive audience. They observed his character, his graciousness, his attitude, his patience, his love, his devotion in the midst of unfair and adverse circumstances. They observed his ministry. They saw everything he did. They heard him preach. They heard him teach. They heard him converse with people about the Word of God. And mark it well, if there had been any contradiction in what Paul taught and his reactions and attitudes while incarcerated, then the soldiers would have dismissed his entire message as being bogus. But rather than dismissing his message, many of them were converted, which is further evidence for his godly character. Maybe you're saying, well, how do you know many of them were converted? Skip over to chapter 4, just a couple pages to the right. Chapter 4, 
verse 22. All the saints greet you. Now watch this. But especially those who are of Caesar's household. Isn't that good? Can't you just see the believers in Rome wanting to reach the people in the imperial family and the people associated with the upper echelon of the government, but not knowing how to go about it? How do we reach the Roman officials? How do we reach people in Caesar's household? So God plants Paul there in prison where he will be chained to imperial guards 24 hours a day, and the result was the spread of the gospel into the royal family and the royal realm of society. These guards became representatives for Paul and even more important evangelists of the Lord Jesus Christ to all the people they talked to about their job and their responsibility to guard Paul. Think of this, beloved. What an amazing twist and turn of events. F.B. Meyer has written this, quote, At times the hired room would be thronged with people to whom the apostles spoke words of life. And after they withdrew, the sentry, that is the guard, would sit beside him filled with many questions as to the meaning of the words which the strange prisoner spoke. At other times when all had gone, and especially at night when moonlight shone on the distant slopes of Seracte, soldier and apostle would be left to talk. And in those dark, lonely hours, the apostle would tell soldier after soldier the story of his own proud career and early life, of his opposition to Christ and his ultimate conversion, and would make it clear that he was there as a prisoner, not for any crime, not because he had raised rebellion or revolt, but because he believed that he whom the Roman soldiers had crucified under Pilate was the Son of God and the Savior of men. As these tidings spread and the soldiers talked them over with one another, the whole guard would become influenced in sympathy with the meek and gentle apostle who always showed himself so kindly to the men as they shared, however involuntarily, his imprisonment. How absolutely consistent the apostle must have been. Did you catch that? If your mind wandered in the quote, listen, how absolutely consistent the apostle must have have been. If there had been the least divergence day or night from the high standard which he upheld, his soldier companions would have caught at it and passed it on to others. The fact that so many became earnest Christians and that the word of Jesus was known far and wide throughout the Praetorium Guard indicates how absolutely consistent the apostle's life was. End quote. But there's even more to it than that. Notice that the free publicity Paul was getting didn't stop in the royal realm of society. Chapter 1, verse 13 says, And to all the rest, not just the royal guards, the praetorium, to all the rest. Everyone who heard about these circumstances knew that Paul was incarcerated there in Rome because of his devotion to Jesus Christ. That's why the last phrase here in verse 13 of chapter 1 is, My chains are in Christ. That was Paul's perspective. He didn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. He saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Go back to the previous letter, Ephesians chapter 3, to to see that illustrated there. Back just one letter, Ephesians chapter 3. Notice verse 1. 
Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Please notice Paul's perspective. Remember, by the time he wrote this, he had been a prisoner of Rome for almost five years. He got in trouble with the Roman officials because of the influence of the Jews who didn't like him. But Paul refused to regard himself as a prisoner of the Jews. He refused to regard himself as a prisoner of Nero. He refused to regard himself as a prisoner of Rome. He was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. He knew that the God he served was sovereign and that nothing could touch him unless Jesus Christ allowed it. That's why he saw himself as Christ's captive, not Caesar's captive. Oh, what a beautiful perspective to have on life. That's why Paul could rejoice in every circumstance in life, because he belonged to the sovereign God of the universe. He knew there were no accidents, not ultimately. Paul saw himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And notice the last phrase here in verse 1 of Ephesians 3, for you Gentiles. He was a prisoner for the Gentiles. How is that the case? Let's go back to the book of Acts to see this. Go back to Acts chapter 9. We'll quickly replay Paul's story to see how he was the prisoner for the Gentiles. Acts chapter 9. Remember that before he was saved, Paul had been a devout Jewish Pharisee. He was such a zealous Jew that he saw Christianity as a threat to the truth, so he wanted to wipe it out. We pick up his story in Acts 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Skip down to verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God, or Jesus as the Christ that he is the Son of God. So immediately after Paul's conversion, he began preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. As you can imagine, this got Paul in real trouble with the Jews. Verse 22 tells us, verse 22 of this same chapter But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But Paul escaped, and he continued preaching that anyone can be saved, Jew or Gentile. The middle wall of division, the law, has been fulfilled by Christ's life and death. It's been set aside. Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. That was Paul's message. His first official position was in the church at Antioch as a teacher. Look at chapter 11 of Acts. Chapter 11, verse 19. Here's his first ministry position. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word 
to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Now watch verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. This was a significant, very significant time in Paul's life because the church in Antioch was made up of Jew and Gentile. Paul saw that rea- the reality of the gospel uniting these two different groups in his ministry there. And then in chapter 13, the Lord called Paul away from this ministry to send him into the Gentile world to spread the gospel. Look at Acts 13, verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Paul goes into the Roman Gentile world. And everywhere Paul went, he started churches made up of both Jew and Gentile. His message was always the same. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're Gentile. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Well, as you can imagine, this really gave Paul a bad reputation among the Jewish people and among the legalistic Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. Paul understood this. So while he was preaching throughout the Gentile world, he collected an offering from each of the Gentile churches to take to the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, 31 and 32, he states his purpose. He says, So that I may be delivered from them who do not believe in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be accepted by the saints. You see, Paul knew that there was this rift between Jew and Gentile in Jerusalem. They were holding to an only Jewish church. So Paul wanted to take this money from Gentile believers to Jewish believers to demonstrate the love and oneness between the two groups. Well, Paul arrived in Jerusalem with the money, and Acts 21 tells us what happened. Skip over to Acts chapter 21. Here's what happened. Verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So the elders of the Jerusalem church had an idea. Interesting idea. Verse 23, Therefore, do what we tell you. 
We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them, be purified with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Well, Paul went along with this plan because he wanted to affirm his love for the Jewish people, but the plan backfired. It backfired. Verse 26 Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law in this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And from that point on, five years later, until Paul wrote Philippians, he was in chains incarcerated. So do you see what got Paul in trouble? It was his message that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And it was his desire to see that reality in practice as he tried to demonstrate it to the Jewish people. The result of all this was that he was arrested, he was imprisoned, and by the time he wrote Ephesians and Philippians, he had been a prisoner for several years. That's why he could say in Ephesians 3.1, he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the Gentiles. And that's why in Philippians 1.13, he said that his chains were in Christ. And the result was the spread of the gospel among the imperial elite of the Roman Empire. Now back to Philippians chapter 1 as we begin to wind down. So in verse 13, Paul tells of the impact of his imprisonment outside the church. Then in verse 14, he tells of the impact of his imprisonment inside the church. Verse 14, he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's incarceration encouraged those who had been reluctant about speaking for Christ. Large numbers of believers became bold for Christ when they saw how God was spreading the gospel through Paul by means of his adverse circumstances. These believers caught the contagious boldness of Paul and his determination. Beloved, as you well know, discouragement can spread like wildfire but so can encouragement. Paul's joy and encouragement by the furtherance of the gospel was spreading to other believers. His response to his circumstances spurred on other Christians to also be bold and speak about Christ. So Paul's incarceration, catch this, Paul's incarceration was doing what his circumstances outside of prison could have never done. 
Think about that. Just as a footnote, the word speak here in verse 14 is not the Greek word for preaching the gospel. This word means everyday conversation. I emphasize this point because we should never think, we should never think that the only way God spreads his word is through preaching. Much of the important and necessary work is done through everyday conversation. Beloved, that's what was happening all around Rome. Paul was the talk of the town. God was using Paul's situation for the furtherance of the gospel. As you think about it, these verses are a vivid illustration of the truth of Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. From a human standpoint, it doesn't seem like what Paul had been going through for the previous four to five years had been good at all. It was unjust. It was unfair. It was basically illegal. But God was working it together for good for the furtherance of the gospel. And that was the passion of Paul's life. Now what about you? What does all this have to do with you and with me? Simply this. Whatever your circumstances are, beloved, whatever your circumstances are, please know that God has allowed them, and if you will have the right attitude about the situation, you will be able to see how God uses adverse circumstances for good. You will be able to see how God uses adverse circumstances to spread His Word, to accomplish His work, to accomplish His purposes. Sometimes I have people say to me, Pastor Brian, it is really hard for me to be a witness in my job because of the circumstances, or in my family because of the dynamics there, or in my, uh, you know, in my neighborhood, or in my whatever. It's really hard for me to be a witness because the circumstances are so difficult. If you feel like that, then look at it this way. If you had an ideal situation, then there's probably no way you could be a witness. You say, what? That sounds strange. Beloved, listen. Most of the time, our witness comes by way of contrast. It's contrast. We are to be different than those around us without Christ. We are to show the difference Christ makes in the life. And since that's the case, oftentimes God drops us right in the middle of hard circumstances so we will stand out as different. I mean, if you can live for Christ when everything's rosy, everything's great in your marriage, everything's great with your kids, everything's great at your job, everything's great in the neighborhood, who couldn't? Who couldn't live for the Lord in those types of circumstances? Everything's great. It's easy. But when it's hard... And your devotion to Christ doesn't fade. What a difference Christ makes in a life. I think of two challenges as we close the message this morning. Two applications. Here they are. Number one, our attitude toward the furtherance of the gospel should be like Paul's. In other words, it should be our passion. It should be our pursuit. It should be our desire. God, use me to spread your truth. Use us to spread your truth. That's what matters most. 
And challenge number two, or application number two, our attitude toward adverse circumstances should be the same as Paul's. Lord, I don't know why you've put me in these circumstances, but may I honor Christ and show the difference Jesus Christ makes in a life in the midst of adversity, difficulty, unjust treatment, unfairness, whatever the case may be. Those are two challenges to our hearts today. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing, if you're here today without Jesus Christ, it would be impossible for you to have the kind of attitude that Paul expresses here. So the need in your life is to turn to Jesus Christ in genuine faith and surrender to him. Like Paul said on the road to Damascus there when he was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? That's the right question. Lord, I I surrender. Whatever you want for my life, that's what I want to do. So if you're here today without Christ, I urge you. I urge you to mimic Paul, follow Paul's example. What do you want me to do? And if you are a child of God, you know Jesus Christ as your own Lord and Savior, then be challenged by Paul's attitudes. Don't leave this as history. Make it something that's personally relevant in your own life, your own heart. Ask the Spirit of God to strengthen you, enable you to have the kind of perspective Paul expresses here in Philippians 1. Father, thank you for the relevance of your word the enduring character of your word, the applicability of your word, the power of it in our lives if we are open to it. Thank you for Paul's example. May it challenge us, encourage us, strengthen us. And in closing, we pray for anyone who's gathered here who does not know your son, Jesus Christ. May this be the day that he or she would like, just like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, simply say, Lord, what would you have me to do? And this is our prayer together in Jesus' precious name. Amen.